Music's connection to place is, naturally, a recurring theme for ethnomusicologists. We travel to places to conduct field research. We find affinity among those who study in the places we study. And the books we write are often organized geographically, by place. This connectivity between music and place, whether conceived as geographical, social, or spiritual, is often a vital aspect of musical expression. In this episode, we talk with Brian Dietrich, whose article, Summoning Breadfruit and Opening Seas, Toward a Performative Ecology in Oceania, was published in the winter 2018 issue of the journal Ethnomusicology. In his article, Brian explores musical practices among the Chukis in the Federated States of Micronesia, examining the historical function and contemporary performances of songs that shape knowledge about and engagement with the land and seascapes of Oceania, what he calls a performative ecology. Brian invites us to consider the role of music in managing natural resources, navigating oceanic places, and integrating physical and spiritual environments within the islands of Chuk. You're listening to Ethnomusicology Today, a podcast produced by the Society for Ethnomusicology devoted to the exploration of contemporary issues in global music studies. I'm Trevor Harvey. You have conducted field work for nearly 20 years in Micronesia. Uh, tell us about your experience researching and traveling in the region and describe the ecological concerns for this area. Micronesia is a really fascinating area of the Pacific. And the country that I've been working in is called the Federated States of Micronesia, which extends across a really large part of the Northwest Pacific. Um, very diverse country with 15 to 17 languages um, and a very diverse range of cultural and musical practices. And as you may know, there's been very little you know, research and publication into the music and dance. So it's an area that I've been really getting into for a number of years. Um, I've been focusing on the state called Chuk, Chuk State and the FSM. Chuk has about 60,000 people and Chuk is it's- itself has 41 different islands. So there's an incredible diversity of place and languages itself. So I first um, visited Chuk in the area in 2000, and I've been going back and forth over many years. I had collected a number of interesting recordings and information about kind of environment and place. And I've been seeing this really emerging as sort of a critical focus in a lot of area of music studies and humanities, social sciences. So obviously, um, climate change and rising sea levels are a really urgent concern in parts of Micronesia, given that not all, but a large uh, number of the islands in the FSM are atolls, so uh, low-lying islands, which um, are great risk of sea level rise. Part of the research was uh, really looking at sort of the in-depth how music interacts with environmental concerns at a kind of deep cultural level. Given these particular ecological concerns, you mentioned rising sea level, what are the direct impacts on daily life and sustainability for people in Chuk and local cultural practices in Chuk? Yeah, so there's obviously concern for for people, for communities, but also aspects of culture. If cultures um, are to you know move away, severing the link with place becomes of great concern. And so my work was looking at some of those deep connections between place and performance um, in Micronesia. So for this article, you you looked specifically at uh, a performative tradition in Chuk known as Rong. Tell us a little bit about the, this tradition. Describe it and what its importance is to shared cultural knowledge in the area. 
Rong is a, really a constellation of many different types of music. Um, there are cultural specialties in Chuuk. So um, there is a type of specialty for wayfinding and voyaging, a specialty for um, weather management or for canoe building, for example. So all these different cultural specialties, every village or community would have particular people invested in these specialties over time. Some of them have been abandoned over time with missionization and colonization. Others are very much there. Um, and some are kind of in between in the area of cultural memory. Um, and this is very much the case for breadfruit summoning. Breadfruit's vaguely familiar to many of us, but can you maybe talk a little bit more about breadfruit and its specific historical importance and, and continued importance to the Chukis? Breadfruit trees are very large trees that are very important for many Pacific communities. And they have this grapefruit-sized uh, fruit on them that um, has been the traditional staple um, of many Pacific communities. It has been replaced over time, at least in some areas, by rice or bread, uh, but it's very much still part of the diet. So it's not surprising then that the culture and society has a whole sort of constellation of music and dance practices surrounding it. So this is atolme, the idea of summoning breadfruit. Um, I first came across this in, in very interestingly in early recordings. So in 1910, German researchers made recordings by a man named Esip from Chuk, who chanted three breadfruit summoning chants on wax cylinders. <laughs> And looking into the ethnographic literature, um, found a whole lot of really interesting information around this idea of breadfruit in the culture. By chance, while living in Chu, um, I met a man named Rewi, who it turned out had been the holder of this information for summoning breadfruit. Um, Rewi was from the island of Hoke, which is a traditional or legendary area where breadfruit summoning originated. And uh, Rewi was someone who held on to these music and chants related to breadfruit summoning. Describe the performative tradition of atomi, or the breadfruit summoning. Atome involves singing, chanting. It involves a series of dances, playing shell trumpets. So traditionally, the summoner would sing to the breadfruit trees over time, in the area of, say, around February, March, uh, into the harvest season and sort of May, um, would sing to the trees and have sort of private performances um, for himself and for a small group of men. But there was also a larger community involvement uh, when the harvest came and the idea of, of celebrating the first fruit harvest. There were music and dances, um, a number of sort of celebrations involved in that. Today in Shuk, it's used in churches, for example, where offerings of breadfruit may be taking place. So there's this really interesting number, a really wide range of music and dance practices um, associated with it. What relationship is there between Atomi and community management of the breadfruit crop? Is there, is there an actual sort of impact that these songs and performances have on, on then the, the management and the working with, with the crop? If you look at the chant poetry, what I find quite interesting in working with Rewi and looking at some of these was that the chants actually talk about ways of protecting the trees, for example, of clearing out pests. And so there's some of that management um, very much embedded in the song text, which I find quite interesting in terms of the sustainability. At the same time, um, a lot of this kind of management was very much spiritual, very much linked with traditional religious practice in Micronesia. 
Um, if I could just say a little bit about um, ESSIP, they're really, really fascinating recordings. Uh, my understanding of it is that just before 1910, Chuuk and parts of Micronesia um, had a number of super typhoons uh, come through that area, which devastated a number of the islands. So ESSIP was someone who was very much responsible for ensuring uh, the breadfruit harvest coming after this disaster. And it was in times of disaster in particular that breadfruit summoners took on a particular role of ensuring their growth of this particular fruit. What sort of role do these songs play in contemporary Chuuk society? Are they still actively performed? Are they still part of uh, contemporary sort of cultural practices? Or are, are these seen as really something historical that, that's maintained by the elders and that, that's part of a historical record? Um, Redfoot summoning, uh, a lot of the chants that Rewi had sort of encoded in memory and was also had written down in books were things that were very much the domain of elders. Um, and that, that's, that's very common in this in the area of Atolme. At the same time, a number of very public uh, dance performances have used versions of these chants in more public arenas. Uh, they're not quite as long, not quite as in-depth. So they have people know about Atolme from these more public performances. At the beginning of your article, you argue for what you call performative ecology in Oceania. But you, you, you have a particular way of approaching that term. Can you talk about what performative ecology means to you, specifically in relation to Micronesia and the area and the research that you have done? And, and partly I want to emphasize the particular kind of efficacious quality of this music. What I saw from uh, people that I worked with in Micronesia is that the importance of the performative quality, the act of doing of this music and dance that opens up particular worlds, particular relationships, spiritual relationships or environmental relationships. But it was in the uttering, the active doing of these practices um, that was quite important. And I link this with broader studies of performativity, the idea of opening up particular kind of realities. I think performativity also um, allows for the not just the focus on sound, but a focus on other kind of multi-sensual ways of approaching this. And of course, it links with the concept of manaman, so in this sense, Manaman is sort of a local concept that ties into your theoretical way of understanding performative ecology. Manaman is a Pacific cognate. Most people would be familiar with the Polynesian term mana, but it does have some uh, particular differences. So yes, in Chuuk, Manaman is a broader concept for most types of wrong, having this spiritual quality, having this efficacious quality from the acting of doing you know, of these practices. And I was very much linking that with the idea of performativity. In addition to talking about the summoning of breadfruit, you also discuss another genre of chants and poems centered around ocean wayfinding. How did these seafaring texts and songs impact your understanding of Micronesian concepts of place? You know, the sea is, is full of named places um, with particular beings in it. It's, it's known and traversed as place and not sort of open expanse, I think is a more sort of Western or perhaps global idea of, of ocean space. And, and this also has, I think, deep concern for considering climate change, changing ocean patterns, etc. But I think looking at their practice of ocean wayfinding, and Micronesia is very famous for uh, wayfinding for a number of um, uh, mariners or navigators, um, but wayfinding really is surrounded by music and dance. So it's the musical practices in particular, the chants that encode um, how to travel, the star courses moving from island to island. And within these chants and the poetry and the performance of these, you again have this opening up of these very interesting realities of the sea as place. Can you describe what these performances 
uh, of these wayfinding or or uh, seafaring uh, rituals are like. Yeah, so there's there's a whole number of contexts, but the most directly is that these will be sung, performed, you know, on a sailing vessel while at sea. Uh, for, for a particular reason. Traditionally, they were sung to ward away storms, for example, um, and certainly to, you know, to find your way. So all of the information uh, is encoded in memory. These are lo- learned over a very long period of time from early years, again, traditionally by men who then keep this information, which is essential for survival when you're at sea. Um, these are very much written down and recorded today. And there's a lot of controversy about that in Micronesia, at least for those I've talked to, because of you know, if you don't have it in memory, what happens if you, you need it and it's written down, etc. But um, the, the, the kind of rituals, as you talked about, or sort of performances can play, take place at sea, but also before a voyage takes place in large celebrations, for example. And so there's a lot of larger community kind of role, as I said. A number of these chants that are still sung today in sort of public performances and at festivals, you know, extol past voyagers from 20th century historic times who made particular voyages for particular reasons. So it's very much embedded in, in everyday practice. You also discuss gendered domains of knowledge and performance in Micronesia. Are there strict gender divisions within these traditions? And what space is there for inclusion? I, I think so far you, you talked about men. Um, what about women? What, what are the gendered roles here? There, there are traditionally um, strict gender codes in voyaging, which was very interesting. If you look at uh, Pacific Island voyaging practices, again, in Hawaii, here in Aotearoa, it's very inclusive um, today. But still in Micronesia, it's mostly men who are the navigators or the, the, the master mariners. What's interesting, though, is looking at the domain of music and performance, it's mostly women who are the composers of these songs, many of them that detail ocean voyages, um, of these practices that even sort of encode places and experience in the sea environment. So there's this very common idea in Micronesia that was told to me many times, and you find in the literature that the sea is the domain of men and the land is the domain of women. And I think I was trying to sort of complicate that a bit, looking at the practices of performance where women are the ones composing and bringing these more public performances into light that detail aspects of place and the sea. So we've kind of danced a little bit around this idea of, of economy. We've talked about sustainability and, and cultural practices and climate change. How do these ecological concerns and these traditional practices of voyaging and also summoning breadfruit, how are they tied into economy, local economy for, for Micronesians? I would say that at least traditionally, a number of these specialties were work in the community. So your particular place was voyaging, you were given gifts for making voyages, for example, or summoning breadfruit. Uh, so all of these exam- uh, examples had sort of additional role in sort of traditional economy. In a more contemporary economy, and I, I should say very openly that a number of people that I've talked to in Chuuk, you know, would not see summoning breadfruit as having uh, a lot of contemporary usage in society where others would. So it's something that's, that's definitely contested. This probably plays into a lot of the kind of celebrations in Micronesia that are used for fundraising, for example. There's been some work done on this where these performances can be done in public events to fundraise for various community activities. So that's probably the kind of one of the linkages there with sort of local economy. How have you know the, either these particular traditions such as Rong or other traditions among the Chuuk been an important aspect of articulating or shaping Chuuk identity? Certainly, uh, I think it's hugely important. I, I go back to the idea of the importance of place. Um, and the, uh, the question lingering here is what happens when you remove that sort of connection to place and music. Um, certainly for voyaging, uh, that's something that's become kind of iconic 
and very an area of cultural pride in Micronesia for for many young Micronesians today, whether or not they you know have a, a role in that particular practices of sort of knowing that this is something that is sort of embedded and where they're from in that culture, so that Micronesians celebrating you know outside of of the FSM and parts of the U.S., for example, will take this on as an element of cultural pride. So I think these practices are very much part of that sort of communal identity. Um, whether or not someone has a particular sort of direct, you know, connection to it or not. You also mentioned that you view your relationship to the research area and the culture as an ally to indigenous Micronesians. What challenges have, have you faced negotiating a culturally sensitive approach to working with an indigenous community within the context of these contemporary and global concerns? I've always tried to approach these things in a very sensitive way, in part by asking friends and colleagues about issues, uh, about how to act responsibility when, when I was unsure, but also being aware of my positionality in the culture, that critical positionality of ourselves and research, I think is quite crucial. I guess on top of that, I've always tried to be useful uh, while residing in Chuuk, and it was actually musical background and experiences that were part of that in, in teaching, for example, and volunteering teaching in secondary school contexts, keyboard playing in the community and working with choirs, but sort of just trying to have that usefulness. In a broader sense, I guess I see myself as trying to be an advocate for some of the concerns you know, in the community. Uh, but certainly there are a number of you know, emerging uh, scholars and artists in Micronesia that have you know, taken on and leading this role. So I see myself as an advocate. Are there contemporary developments in musical culture in Micronesia beyond these traditions that you're addressing that Micronesians have turned to continue to further address growing concerns of, of climate change? With the kind of contemporary performances, we interestingly don't see a lot of, of popular music, for example, that's sort of directly sort of addressing or protesting the effects of climate change, at least not yet. You do in other parts of the Pacific, but in the FSM, that's something that's very much emerging in the diaspora communities. So a number of people from Chuuk and Micronesia living in Hawaii and elsewhere, you're, you're seeing definitely sort of growing concern. I think people in this part of the Pacific face a number of traumas over time in terms of colonialism. Um, so Micronesia has had Spain, Germany, Japan, and the U.S. sort of as colonial administrators over time. Um, the Second World War, for example. But climate change poses something quite different, I think, in terms of rising sea levels, the implications um, for place. So I think it's something that is definitely um, an emerging area for ethnomusicologists to pay more attention to and to look at in, in more detail. I really appreciate your comments on place and the ways the sort of Western concept of the ocean is this open, expansive space lacking a sense of place. I was thinking about that musically, right? From the Chuk perspective or Micronesian perspective, how do we combat this perception of Oceania as, as just a placeless space? And, and how is music reinforcing these core ideas, not just locally, but on a broader global scale? I think it's underlying a number of the concerns I'm looking at, sort of underlying the challenges of climate change, just the idea of a place without place, for example, but looking at more broadly the sea as place. And I think it's that connectivity, uh, in particular in the kind of recitations and chants uh, for navigation in particular, that sort of encode this continuity that sort of link places through chant, through stars, through islands. So this idea of connectivity and movement, I think, is definitely there. Uh, which is part of that. There's some really interesting theoretical writing on uh, connectivity as place in the Pacific. And I think it is that sense of connectivity that is very much a part of place, if that makes sense.
Brian Dietrich is a senior lecturer in ethnomusicology in the New Zealand School of Music at Victoria University of Wellington. His research and scholarship is based on the music cultures of the Federated States of Micronesia and Micronesian migrant communities residing in Hawaii. His article, Summoning Breadfruit and Opening Seas, Toward a Performative Ecology in Oceania, can be found in the winter 2018 issue of the journal Ethnomusicology. Ethnomusicology Today is produced with the help and support of many people. Thanks to our student research and production assistants, Ross Clauser, Miranda Henry, and Todd Johnson. Consulting editor Harry Berger and our advisory board members, Portia Maltby, Les Gay, Martin Stokes, David Kaminsky, and Leon Garcia-Corona. Additional support and encouragement has been provided by SEM First Vice President Judith Gray and SEM Executive Director Stephen Stemfley. Together with Brian, we would like to express gratitude for the generosity of knowledge shared by his collaborators in Chuuk, especially Rari, John Sandy, Elias Sandy, Joaquin Peter, and many others. This podcast is produced by the Society for Ethnomusicology in collaboration with KRUI and with support from the University of Iowa College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and the Iowa Center for Research by Undergraduates. Yeah, yeah, yeah.